Welcome to the Rereaders. In this week's podcast, we watch a monster being born in Haifa Al-Mansur's literary biopic, Mary Shelley. Then we turn pages about monsters of a different kind in the memoir, Eggshell Skull, by Brie Lee. And finally, we analyse the cultural politics of a new clothing category, activewear. I'm Mel Campbell. Joining me in the studio is Rereaders regular Dion Kagan. Hello, Dion. Hi, Mel. I've got my lycras on and I'm ready. <laughs> and you look fly as fuck. <laughs> Are you ready to get active in this episode? I think the the whole thing is it's just a nice, nice and comfy sitting here in my leggings. Yeah, totes. <laughs> Our special guest critic is also no stranger to leggings. We can talk a little bit more of that later in the episode. It's Melissa Cranenberg, who is a writer, editor and broadcaster. Her work's been featured in The Big Issue, Radio National's Books and Arts Daily, Mamma Mia, The Wheeler Centre and Better Reading. On Melbourne community radio station 3RRR, Mel hosts Backstory, a show about books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Hello, Mel. Hello. I'm so excited. My leg are trembling. <laughs> I'm really a bit intimidated because you have quite a lot of broadcasting experience behind you. I hope that we don't disappoint you. I genuinely thought you were going to say that you were quite intimidated by my legging collection. Well, I'm also I intimidated by that. Very broad legging collection. Do you know what? Well, let's not. We'll save the gold for the. <laughs> For that segment. But I want to ask you more about that legging collection. It's terrifying. First of all, let's return to a time before people wore leggings. It was a dark and stormy night at the Villa Diodati on Lake Geneva. Bored by the incessant bad weather, a group of writers set each other the challenge of writing a ghost story. But only two of them took it seriously. Dr John Polidori, played by Ben Hardy, wrote The Vampire, a ruthless satire of his emotionally blood-sucking employer, the louche poet Lord Byron, played by Tom Sturridge. And 18-year-old Mary Wollstonecroft Golden, played by Elle Fanning, wrote the story that had been haunting her nightmares for the past two years, a tale of a gentle creature callously cast aside by its creator, which takes vengeance on the world that spurned it. We now know Mary's story as the iconic novel Frankenstein, and we know its author by her married name, Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley is a biographical film about Mary's early life, directed by Haifa Al-Mansur from an original script by Australian screenwriter Emma Jensen. Al-Mansur's 2012 feature debut was Wajda, another female coming-of-age story set in her native Saudi Arabia. Since films and filmmaking were banned at the time, Al-Mansur had to direct the film in secret, and it was the first film directed in Saudi Arabia, and Al-Mansur remains the only female Saudi Arabian film director. So there are some parallels between the director's life and work and that of Mary Shelley, but they aren't necessarily foregrounded in a film that in many ways is very conventional, hitting the familiar beats of historical melodrama. Mary is an intelligent, sensitive but discontented teenager when radical poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, played by Douglas Booth, arrives to be mentored by her father, William Godwin, played by Stephen Delane. They run away together, bringing along Mary's stepsister Claire Claremont, played by Belle Powley, who quickly falls for Lord Byron. Romantic heartache ensues, but after many scenes of scribbling with the words recited in voiceover, Mary at last enjoys literary triumph. Now, Mel, did Mary Shelley give you a galvanic thrill or was there no life in this cinematic course? Oh, God. All of the tropes of, you know... This was tropetastic. It was tropetastic. In fact, in a way, I sort of enjoyed it because I had my trope bingo going <laughs> and I pretty much had a full kind of, you know, bingo sheet. Um, I really enjoyed it for that. Um, it is, to be completely fair to the filmmakers, extremely hard to kind of show the act of writing on film because really it's just like someone sitting, you know, in front of their, you know, choose writing implement of choice yeah, that's right. for hours and hours doing nothing else but kind of that and then occasionally drinking lots and lots of tea or, you know, similar things. It's incredibly boring to watch. So really what do they do? They foreground the things that you would expect, which is the romance aspect or, you know, these other elements and then just like have these kind of, you know, furious montages to fill in the <laughs> blanks. Um, 
you know, look, I, I think that there was a lot of well-meaning stuff wound in here. I do think that, you know, obviously the uh, the Frankenstein metaphor was like pulled to its absolute limit. I almost felt like the limbs were flying off the Frankenstein <laughs> metaphor. Um, you know, it is a Frankenstein of a film in a sense, but every single element that you could draw out of it was there. Um, so, you know, I feel warmly towards the filmmaker because I think it's a challenge to do this. I think that, again, you know, you do have sort of modern concerns about, you know, women kind of still constantly being, you know, reflected upon as not the kind of creators more as the muses. And mm. I do think it pulled out those things themes quite nicely. You know, it re-centralised some of the themes in Frankenstein um, that aren't often looked at, you know, which is essentially that, you know, it was written by a woman who was essentially a Frankenstein of her father's ideas, um, but then was abandoned when she actually chose to act upon them. I thought that that was a good underlying thing. And I also thought that that kind of, you know, the scenes with um, with Byron and Shelley, where they're essentially just marginalising the women and treating them like crap, um, is still incredibly true to life in like a lot of artistic communities so you know um they did a, they did what they could with it but yes this was tropetastic and you know bless them uh, yeah I, I i felt at first intensely annoyed by the historically inaccurate costumes <laughs> oh my god and the I hairstyles knew this was gonna, as soon as i saw the first frame i thought that hairstyle, I bet it's wrong and Ooh, I bet Mel knows. Oh, it's so wrong. <laughs> but do you know what else? I hated the way that she wore these little little Peter Pan style collars like she was in the 1930s or 40s. There was a scene where she's in a carriage being driven up to Scotland wearing a beret looking like it's World War II. She's being evacuated from London like a child. Uh, anyway, can we just get back probably to don't get hair. me started so, on me. So there's a braid which gets tied around the top of the head like a crown and then lots of what long annoys me is out. that they've got this long hair and they never well seldom there are a few scenes where their hair is put up but they seldom put all the hair up whereas it's a marker of adulthood oh look maybe we can say that it's actually a style decision to show these as girl adult children you know in many ways they are playing at being adults in the film they, they think that they're so grown up and that they're following what their um, you know sophisticated brains are doing but really they are teenagers and they make bad teenage decisions so I will accept the hair in that way but it's extremely <laughs> historically inaccurate. But I can't, can I just cut in because I did look up you know some of the images um, of you know Mary Wollstonecroft Shelley as she became um, and I noticed that you know some of the lithographs had that hairstyle with her hair down in the braids so I think that's what they used as inspiration because I was like oh so that's where that came from because I thought that that was a bit of an odd hairstyle so I'm, it must have been just this one sketch of her that included that hairstyle and they've just run with it. Um, that was kind of my guess because maybe I was little, really surprised by that. Yeah, maybe it's a bit like the Emily Dickinson biopic um, that came out, was it last year or the year before with Cynthia Nixon um, as Emily Dickinson and that basically only one photo and maybe a painting exists of Emily Dickinson so they have to make her look like that <laughs> because that's what people think of when they think of, of these authors and again maybe that says something about the way that female authors don't have this iconography associated with them. Whereas Byron in particular was one of the most, you know, illustrated men of his time. He was one of the first celebrities. Can we talk a bit about the portrayal, John um, Tom Sturridge's portrayal of Byron, which I felt was absurd. Okay, I want to talk about this, but I wanted to, I want to continue your point, Mel, about mm -hmm. this lack of iconography because I think that that lacuna lends itself to, you know, really imaginative portrayals. At resurrections of these these women from history. And it does seem really disappointing that you would get this lush kind of, you know, Byron, who is a lush literally, but also this, yeah, kind of grotesque, exaggerated, but kind of young and sexy Byron figure who's been endlessly reproduced throughout history across media forms and and a kind of very staid Mary Shelley when there's when she is clearly the kind of animating impulse of oh, the... Oh, I saw what you did there. <laughs> of, you know, of this, not only this film, but this cultural text, which is, you know, far more widely known than the work of Byron, but also is dark and, you know, mm -hmm. anticipatory and dystopian and kind of, you know, d riddled with 
abjection and and they're painting her as this almost puritan in in kind of reaction to to Byron and the others like this disappointing kind of she kind of has person. to embody the ideological norms of the film yeah. like she's I don't think she does necessarily because as she says at one point in the film she's like I believe that people can live their lives exactly as they want here's how I want to live my life it's with you Shelley and Shelley's like oh you're so normcore stop denying me my <laughs> right my okay. rights no 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 to I bang lots of I think I think we should unpack this because I saw this definitely as a emphasizing the kind of costs of male libertinism um, and the the sort of dividends they pay for for men while women are all, like under patriarchy women never really kind of get those dividends especially not at the time that Mary Shelley lived but I do think it kind of did like she must have been a kind of wildly imaginative person and a person who was kind of not only like living out forms of transgression but kind of from this lineage of transgressors and she still has to kind of embody in this film this kind of new this contemporary or like I mean today's normative mm. ideologies like she's the one who's kind of like actually I'm a one boy girl and you know I'm happy like I'm a complete radical in theory but I just you know don't don't need to kind of deal with the messy shit. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. sort of interesting because they, you know, they have this moment of pause when, um, you know, Mary looks at a Fusilli painting and reflects that actually her mother, you know, ha- he was her mother's lover and that her mother, you know, in reaction nearly, you know, um, took drastic steps, um, took her own, nearly took her own life over this, the ending of this love affair. Um, and she's sort of going, how could someone so strong, um, you know, do something like that because of a bloke, basically? And she's sort of reflecting on that, you know, how to live an authentic life as someone of passion um, in a world that essentially is stacked against you. And I did think that that was mm. what they were trying to do with that, where She's like, no, I want to live my truth and I want to be honest. But I think in order to kind of paint that with a limited palette, she Mm. was coming across as this real kind of, you know, conservative almost of the film, whereas I think what they were trying to show in a sense was here's a freaking like 16, 17, 18-year-old girl who's like trying to work out what they are in the face of like this aggressively kind of patriarchal society. it's It was a tough one, I think, to try and show with all the complexities of a, you know, this courageous spirit, this rebellious woman. You know, it, it was mm. a difficult one. Mm. Well, Dion, this brings me back to something that you were just saying a little bit earlier, which is, who is this for? We think about these romantic poets um, as almost having inhabited a different kind of world, that we live in a less romantic world these days, romantic in every single sense of the term, both in the aesthetics that were espoused at the time, the also the politics, the, um, the morality, but also the, this idea of, of libertinism as the governing principle of one's life, being true to yourself. Mm. Um, so... Who are we talking to now? Are we talking to teenagers? Is this film for people of Mary's age now? Or do you think it's for literary people? Because me, being an older person and, you know, knowing about the history of Western costume, it annoyed me. But Mm. maybe it wasn't for me. Look, I think these, you know, it's very well known that the market for these films is the kind of educated American elite. It's like the Miramax model is an export industry from Europe and the UK to the kind of arts-educated American middle brow. So, you know, that, that that's kind of the prime audience. That's It's an older audience. So, I, so it is, I mean, it is interesting, though, that increasingly... Um, I notice as I age that the performers in these types of films are a lot younger, partly because adulthood kind of happened younger in the 18th and 19th century, but also because, you know, it's they're, they're sort of, you know, beautiful. There's nothing more saleable and beautiful than a kind of young Kira Knightley with a perfect English accent, you mm. know, and porcelain skin kind of enunciating beautiful lo- lines of a canonical text or of a historical nature. So, yeah, I mean, I I do know what you're, you're saying, Mel. I think that there is something kind of YA about this particular... Yeah. So that's kind of what I'm getting at. And it, also I'm trying to tease apart the aesthetic from the sort of the tonal concerns of this film. So, for instance, it is quite stuffy looking. It looks like it's directed at people who are much older, but... Um, 
what if its tone, its its kind of passion, as it were, was for younger people? So, for instance, I'm thinking about the way that when things are directed towards younger people, they tend to be cool, like quote unquote, and they try and, <laughs> and use things like um, production design and costume, the language that people speak, the use of music, for instance, to cue the audience that this is meant for younger people. So, for instance, think of um, Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Mm. For instance, that's meant to be the young person's history. Is this, do you think, uh, well, maybe I can ask this for both of you. Do you think that this is a young person's biopic or do you think it still can't escape those tropes that Mel was gesturing towards? One of the things that really um, made me think about this, actually, Mel, was that there was a lot of focus on the drama. Like, <laughs> and I did think about drama. that when I was watching. I was like, oh, my God, this is the drama. This might as well be like, you know, um, you know, like a show that's kind of targeted at, you know, a younger audience for that purpose. So you're really relating to the fact that here's, you know, a group of young people who are, you know, like trying to live an artistic life, getting wasted and just generally behaving badly. They um, were wasted a lot in the film, weren't they? They were wasted a lot, but then, you know, they probably would have been. And then, and in some senses, I think, you know, the sort of like, um, you know, the stuff that's going on is is apart from perhaps, you know, the early teen pregnancy <laughs> or maybe including that, I do not want to assume. Um, I think a lot of that is really um, is targeted at a younger audience. It felt like that to me and that was one of the notes I actually wrote down. I'm like, is this supposed to be drama-focused because it's for a younger audience? But again, would a younger audience go to see uh, mm. something that's framed like this in, a, in this sort of stuffy period piece sort of approach? So I don't think it really... Yeah, it doesn't really seem to, like, know its audience, and I think that that's possibly an issue. Mm, Interesting. I kind of was craving the Sophia Coppola treatment. Like, I wanted to see, you know, dresses being ripped apart and trashy, you know, orgies at... um, With a kind of banging soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) With a contemporary soundtrack. Well, not necessarily. I think you can still create that sort of whimsical or kind of wild or even anachronistic vibe with with a with a classical soundtrack but you know if you think about those kind of Jane Campions and those Sophia Coppolas and and Sally Potter historical melodramas mm-hmm. they were always doing these things with like the body and sensation and Mary Shelley so right for that treatment because she was such a kind of wild imaginative character so, yeah. Yeah. I really did want more sex. I really did. I'm like, where was the sex? Yeah, but what so about we- the film, Mel? <laughs> 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 oh, Mel. Oh, come oh. on. Yes. Um, hello. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because it's such a visceral story and, and yet they're trying to get away, I suppose, from those cliches of, you know. But at the same time, they indulge in the cliches. Mm. That's what makes this such a, a weird film. I think I liked it more than on reflection than I did while watching it. Um, but if you would like to uh, animate yourself and your conversations with your friends by watching Mary Shelley, you can do so in cinemas now. On to topic two. The eggshell skull rule is a well-established legal doctrine. It stipulates that a person's unexpected frailty can't be used as a legal defence after injuring them. You must take a victim as you found them, assuming everyone is equal before the law and can be equally wronged by its contravention. After Brie Lee finished her law degree, she got one of the most coveted graduate jobs, working as a judge's associate in the Queensland District Court. She quickly found herself bearing witness to crimes that are, to borrow from Law & Order SVU, especially heinous. Horrific child abuse and violent rapes and sexual assaults. Lee's disquiet builds as she sees how outrageously the legal system favours perpetrators over the already traumatised survivors. And something else is rising within Lee as well. Memories of her own childhood abuse, aged about 12, by a family friend who is six years older. Under stress, she falls back into old self-destructive habits and doubts her own resilience and lovability. Eventually, she makes the decision to pursue her assailant through the court system, knowing full well how little justice it can offer. And she writes about her experiences in a memoir, Eggshell Skull, a memoir about standing up, speaking up, and fighting back. Ultimately, the book reveals the irony of the eggshell skull rule that just as a victim may turn out to be unexpectedly weak and fragile, she may also turn out to be unexpectedly strong and powerful. Dion, have you reached a verdict on eggshell skull? Holy, yeah. Like, there was no deliberating time I was in, you know, straight away. I think the book does exactly what it promises to do and it, and it um, absolutely delivers what you described there, which is... A ferocious, brave, bold, 
unashamedly feminist critique of, of the legal system and how it fails victims of sexual assault. Um, but it's also totally a page turner, you know, mm-hmm. like she, she has a way of writing which is very direct and I wouldn't say kind of overly complex, but it's there, there is a, there is a real eye for narrative and for detail and for scene setting very quickly that the text moves around a lot, particularly in the first 200 pages when she's on the circuit court. Um, she has a great sense of place and a great detail for the kind of processes and and um, rituals of the courtroom, which are both kind of banal um, and administrative, but also kind of loaded with drama and tension. So, yeah, it's fa- it is a fabulous, basically, kind of must-read, I think. Yeah, what really struck me, I think, was exactly what you were saying, Dion, the strong sense of place, but also of human bodies in spaces. So she... Um, her own memories of her own abuse start to seep into the things that she sees in court and her imagination as she reads about the cases that she's encountering and, and projects herself into the, the place of the people in these cases is so vivid to me. And even some of the other moments, like one mm. of the moments that, that struck me so much was it's quite early on in the book where um, she sees an injured possum in the road as she's driving home and decides she has to put it out of its misery, but she just can't run it over properly. It was just a moment of absolute horror, realising that you've actually increased its suffering. And this motif of suffering is so, I think it was so simple, but very cleverly incorporated into the book. I think its simplicity was, I think, what struck me as well, that she doesn't try and be tricky, but yet she gets those messages across. This kind of writing is really evidence of very good editing and extremely good craft. Uh, to get something that's this simple to read that contains really complex ideas and, and has a metaphor that's wound throughout it but doesn't feel forced, that mm. is really craft. And I think, um, you know, obviously Brie was, uh, which, you know, is mentioned in the acknowledgements and elsewhere, uh, was one of the, the people that got the Cat Musket Fellowship. In fact, I think she was the first. I think she was the inaugural. The inaugural Cat Musket uh, Fellow. And it really shows. She mentions her mentors in here, Chrissy Neen and Liam Pieper. Um, she really obviously has gotten a lot out of that. Uh, this has been very well managed after the fact by the editors um, at Allen and Unwin. They've done a great job. Uh, and I think this often isn't talked about when people discuss books, just how much the process of actually crafting and redrafting really does have an influence on the end product. Uh, This is definitely evidence of that because it could have been mishandled really easily. Uh, It could have even been too overheated or it could have been too undercooked Mm. or they could have tried to draw in, you know, some narratives that just didn't belong there. They've really streamlined this. They've focused on the things that they needed to focus on. They haven't really gone outside of that. Uh, I felt like, you know, there there was enough of her sort of introspection and her feelings about um, particular things to really colour the narrative without taking it over in a way that was kind of aggressive or didn't really work in that context. Uh, she really does um, fill out this book beautifully, but I do think that that is down to excellent craft, which is why you're not noticing it because it just glides effortlessly through as a, a really excellent read. Mm. It's not complicated. It is done chronologically in a very classic kind of narrative style. Mm. This could have been done in a much more tricksy way. I don't think it would have worked as well. This is very accessible uh, and I think it's going to be widely read as a result. Mm. The structure, I think, was what made it so gripping, the way that um, it builds and builds and builds. So we almost see these um, early cases that she sees in her her time as a judge's associate, which is really, it's only maybe the first act of the book that um, takes up that time in her life. And the rest of it is about the process of this case that she's building against um, her assailant and how that goes. And I was filled with tension, wanting to know how it would turn out because what she's foreshadowed is that these cases almost never succeed. Mm. And so you're waiting, you're waiting for the other shoe to drop and for um, her to feel completely devastated. And as well, it's so clever the way that she presents herself as a fragile person, you know, and that's why I appreciated the the double metaphor of the eggshell skull and the fact that it can be about unexpected strength as well as about unexpected weakness. 
She also owns her own privilege in this book, which is something that I think was so beautifully handled because she's sort of saying, look, if it's this much of a struggle for me and I'm legally educated, uh, you know, I've come from a you know, a background that maybe wasn't as privileged as some others, but it was pretty privileged well, in she, a lot of ways. Well, her father's a cop, so Absolutely. she has that inside knowledge of the, the legal system from that perspective too. Yeah, and she talks, she says, if I am struggling with this, imagine what everyone else has to go through. And I think that her reasons for sticking with it as well, which were beautifully foregrounded, is all I want is to, you know, for example, have some kind of a conviction recorded against my assailant because other people were affected by this and it might make it easier for them. I think that this makes it so much more palatable than maybe some other stories that come from people who are maybe from more privileged backgrounds because she is owning that and she's also in a way telling the other stories that don't get to be told, that don't have the successful outcome. And I think that that really makes this an incredibly powerful and important book in that respect as well. Mm. The idea of a a legal case from the very beginning is powerful too because we so often see the final result, which is the trial, and the people in the courtroom and them outside the courtroom. But what Lee's book highlights is that this is just the end point of an extremely frustrating and for the... um, the victim in this situation, a very upsetting and re-traumatising process in which you're constantly being told that you don't matter um, as the victim um, and, and that it can be just callous. And the system operates almost like a, a character in its own right in the book, the, the kind of the rhythms of it, like you said before. Um, was it Dion that you said that before? The, the, yeah, just the rituals and rhythms of of the of the trial of the legal process, but That's and, right. and also, but like the behind the scenes stuff as well. You know what happens when the trial adjourns or gets you, you know when the jury goes out to deliberate and the people who are actually kind of executing those processes step yeah. out and you know what what happens when that whole kind of performance is is sort of paused. And also what was really interesting as well is how she does that sort of, you know, showing you how she has insight and knowledge. And then when she steps over the line and becomes a complainant, how it all changes for her, you know, how she is again just learning and and has the insecurities that no doubt other people would have. And especially there's, you know, the bit where she talks about the roadmap to actually getting some kind of a, you know, even reaching trial stage. A lot of things in here I didn't realise, I'm sure many others didn't yeah. don't realise until or didn't realise until they've read the book. Um, and she even coming from a legal background didn't realise that in fact it's up to the prosecutors um, or the you know Department of Prosecution to decide whether or not these cases are heard. Mm. And a very tiny, tiny percentage of them even are. So even reaching the hurdle of, of you know, having someone charged in the first place is incredibly unlikely. And And so she sort of reflects at one stage that she, oh, that's right, I don't even get to see these things until they reach the trial stage. And that's the end of this enormously long journey and an incredibly unlikely one for the vast majority of people who undergo some kind of sexual assault. Yeah, I think that this is, like you were saying, Mel, a completely accessible account of these things and that's perhaps what makes it powerful. Um, I really appreciated that it didn't have that Helen Garner quality to it which I dislike which is this idea of like unnecessarily creating narratives and um, and highlighting yourself as this ghoulish observer of crime. Um, I felt like she had sympathies um, for people who were stuck in systems and she didn't turn it into some kind of a fantastical story. Um, it's, it's a strong enough story to stand on its own and I hope it doesn't get compared with um, with books like... I know that Helen Garner does actually give a blurb, a cover blurb for the book, but it's for me it wasn't a Garner-esque book and a lot of true crime, for instance, books are now routinely compared to Garner's work. Whereas I think that what she's doing is vivid and it stands on its own. Anyway, I can't praise this book enough. I loved it. Mm, me too. I Yeah. And I, th- I, th- I think you're both right. It's going to be really widely read. And I mean, we, you know, we know that the criminal justice system is failing, you know, in, in this area, like so hard, but we don't necessarily have insight into the complexities of that. And this is such a well-rounded 
sort of 360 degree telling of it because it's not just the kind of Ghana figure going in to observe a court case. It's someone who is both within the legal system and then a subject of it, which just makes it so kind of rich, you know. It makes it such a learning... It, it's such a pedagogical experience but without being patronising or boring mm. um, and... It's also it's also so kind of personal and relatable because, a, apart from anything else, she's a person coming of age, and it's the memoir of you know beginning her career, and then it, that being interrupted by this gigantic personal journey. But I liked that she didn't focus it on her own suffering unduly. It wasn't like a misery memoir, for instance. Um, she never loses sight of herself as a subject of these systems, which I think is is what makes the book particularly strong. I, I think I have to look at this within the context of memoir as well, because I really do feel like it is a very different thing to have a first-person narrative. And we have a natural likelihood to form a kind of relationship with that voice. And so that is an original strength that a lot of books get for nothing. What I love about this is how well that was used, that actually they drew back enough from the kind of total focus on that character's inner monologue uh, to actually really show these other elements of a broader system. And I think that that was the mastery of this book. I really do think that with a young writer who was right at the beginning of her career and who had such excellent support, I can, you know, really, the, the Cat Musket Fellowship, to give that to someone, and she does adequately thank them in, uh, in the acknowledgements, which I always read with things like this, I feel like this is real evidence of, you know, why it's important to really spend time working on books, making sure that they're going to get to the place they're supposed to go so that they don't come out undercooked um, Mm. and that these opportunities are offered to more people as well. Fantastic. We totally recommend Eggshell Skull, which is now available wherever good books are sold. Thank you to Alan and Unwin for providing our review copies. On to topic three. A 2015 viral comedy sketch by all-female group Skitbox paid deadpan homage to the practice of dressing as if for exercise, but really engaging only in ordinary leisure pursuits. Active wear, active wear became a catch cry. And now, former rereaders guest host Lauren Carroll Harris has set out to analyse the economics and politics of active wear in an essay that appears in The Lifted Brow, number 38. Carol Harris writes, Active wear is a lesson in how to commodify, how to problematise, how to whip up something from nothing, and by something, I mean a multi-million dollar mass market. It's the story of late capitalism in miniature. Neoliberal capitalism situates individuals as atomised bodies who constantly strive to discipline themselves in order to achieve their potential and ascend social hierarchies. And capitalism also teaches us to desire and to display, to want the things that markets always find new ways to sell us, and to use consumer goods to say something meaningful about who we are. The essay is particularly intriguing when it works up a sweat about gender and the politics of appearance. Carol Harris traces the cultural influence of such activewear sporting celebrities as Jane Fonda, Jennifer Lopez and Gwyneth Paltrow and explains how activewear fulfils the promises of comfort and practicality that most women's fashion ignores. Now, Mel, I've seen you sporting activewear (laughs) even while sitting still and writing. So did you see yourself in this essay? I actually loved this essay because I saw just how much I'd bought into some of this stuff, really. Um, And to be truthful, you know, I bought into it in the way that I guess I was meant to, which is this, like, you know, active wear is practical and you've got pockets in things that you didn't have pockets in before and it's comfortable and I can wear it on my bicycle and elsewhere. But really, you know, um, one of the things that that this essay points out is that actually a lot of it is about appearance and Mm. they're really expensive as well and you're buying into this tribalism Um, and I have to say I still do love a lot of my active wear but reading this uh, this piece really did contextualize just how capitalism just gets its little tendrils into every aspect of our lives and I suddenly feel like I need these things in a way that I used to actively sort of work against. Actively work against. Actively, (laughs) haha. But but weirdly, in another life, I used to edit a bicycle magazine. It was part of a behaviour change organisation. And I spent a lot of time trying to say to people, you know what? You don't need to wear any special clothing to get on your bike. It's a form of transport. And actually, you get incidental exercise. And my whole 
whole thing was trying to make that accessible to show that you didn't need to wear something special to go and do it. I still feel that way. And so I am amazed at how well I was marketed to uh, in terms of active wear because it's not cheap and mm. it's not something you actually need. So how did I fall down that that rabbit hole so completely that I have multiple matching pairs of things? Uh, <laughs> so it is really, reading this was really such a fascinating, um, you know, encapsulation of how that all happened uh, and it's really made me think well, about it's it. It's broken you out of it's broken the me. false consciousness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially wear. the Lululemon um, founder who sounds like such a dick. Like really, he was sort of, you know, talking about, you know, it's no surprise that I'm the one straight male in the kind of female fashion industry, (gasps) you know, because I know how to, you know, make women look good in things or something. I'm like, you are a moron. Uh, But, you know, it's a really interesting essay in a lot of ways. Do you know, it reminds me a little bit about an article that I read just today um, in which they were basically saying there's no such thing as a feminist corporation. There's no such thing as a feminist company because capitalism cares about no other ideology than itself. All it wants is to, like cancer, multiply and spread and occupy every (laughs) single space. You know, every single idea gets colonised by the idea that now you can buy that idea. Things that used to be free, uh, now you must pay for. And those include ideas of, you know, you being able to move through the world in comfort, which is, I think, one of the most compelling promises of active wear, the idea of feeling comfortable, which is terrible because it's capitalism that strips comfort from our lives and forces us to work. And that's the terrible, bitter irony of mm. active wear, that you are fighting against the very system in your active wear <laughs> that seeks to sell it to you. I want to make a, a little bit of a pushback. I mean, I'm very on board with with Lauren's argument here. And I mean, I'm also interested in in why active wear is is kind of being singled out as the kind of more aspiration the the embodiment of a real kind of aspirational style of fashion when it is actually quite kind of democratic in some ways but let's let's just put that to to one side because one thing that i think you could say in in defense or in kind of recuperation of active wear is that the labor of especially female body discipline, you know, the kind of work that is done to maintain a kind of ideal body is historically, like, disavowed, right? And so the thing about activewear is it showcases publicly this the fact of the exercising female body, right? It's sort of signposts, whether, whether you're exercising it or not. It's like this is a person who is active physically to maintain this presentation, which conforms to social norms. And so in some ways, it is, it is I think, it is, you know, I don't want to say liberating or freeing, but it does sort of uncloset the, the, the disciplinary practices that it takes to maintain or work at maintaining ideal embodiment. Is that like just I, a I real think, cultural studies wank well, defence? It, it's an interesting one and she does address that. She does kind of talk about the fact that actually, you know, it is mostly there to make you look good. And the Lululemon example was a really good one because she sort of says there was a, you know, huge kind of, you know, controversy because basically they went up to a size 12 and, you know, they're, you know, basically the founder was blaming women's bodies for stretching his fabric right. out women's of shape. women's bodies don't work for the it's pants. That's right. They don't mm. work for the pants, you know. it's That's the problem. And what, you know, the other thing that she talks about is that this is very particularly targeted at women. It doesn't seem to be really happening in any other space. Um, and also, you know, it's really focusing on looking good, whereas when you're doing exercise, that's not what it should be about. Uh, I think I remember that British kind of pro-exercise campaign that was really trying to show that every person should be involved in physical activity and they were showing sweat and they were showing red faces Mm. and the kinds of things that actually happen during exercise is you're not supposed to be about, it's not supposed to be about appearance it's supposed to be about how it makes you feel, what it's doing for your body, being involved and engaged with it. It shouldn't be about what fashion items you're wearing and how good you look in them and those things and this is 
is coming from someone who is totally bought into some of this gear. You know, really, you're buying them because they're pretty looking and they, you know, make your ass look good. I mean, this is very much about aesthetics. It is very much a fashion choice and it's expensive. Like, there are different levels of these. Like, and again, that's talked about in the article and you can get, you know, super cheap stuff at uh, Kmart or Target. But actually, a lot of the price points are quite high and the aspirational stuff is, you know, really quite expensive. And already you're paying for exercise. And exercise should be a democratic thing. You should be able to put on shoes that don't cost a bomb and run out the door and you're doing exercise. But now you're made to feel like you're missing out if you're not spending, you know, loads and loads of money on expensive exercise programs, going to different and more expensive gyms. And while they're wearing this extraordinarily expensive uniform, I think she lays that all out in a way that's made me go, maybe I should consider what I'm waving a flag for. When I I'm completely agree this crap. with you. Yeah. I agree. Can we talk a little bit about <laughs> the class dimension of active wear? Because it's for rich women. And it's not only for you know people who are literally rich, but people who want to appear rich. There's an aspirational quality mm. to it. So think about some of the degraded forms of leisure wear that we've seen in the past. Tracksuits, particularly um, parachute tracksuits, or um, those little ones made out of you know the velour, or those kind of sports suits that you associate with um, people of colour and ethnic people, not white people. There's a certain kind of athletic wear that is associated with non-normative forms of presentation. And so it, it acknowledges that there are some ways to be active that are more normative than others. Um, whereas this is for thin people, it's mm. for rich people, it's for white people. Um, even people like Jennifer Lopez, who built her um, early career on an explicitly racialized vision of, of active wear. Um, and even if you think back to something like um, Rosie Perez in the opening credits of Do the Right Thing, wearing essentially a kind of active wear outfit and dancing and being joyful and fierce. And, and I don't mean fierce in that gross, appropriated way that we now think of it. I've, I mean, literally, she looks like she's going to tear you apart. And um, th that kind of physical activity was, you know, played down. And now we see this idea of, of leisure and glamour and, and the luxurious fabrics that Carol Harris does actually talk about when she's writing things like cashmere and um, and the drapery, the silkiness of some of the active wear and um, things like that. And also the other stereotype is like fat women wearing leggings and T-shirts, which used to be such a terrible thing that you must never, ever wear. The idea of being so fat that you can't even fit into jeans anymore and you have to wear elasticised pants. Um, that used to be something terrible, but now it's almost a badge of honour um, to be able to, to wear these kinds mm. of clothes. And activewear, there's no place in it for fat people. Like the, You can wear certain kinds of activewear if you're fat, but even in that skit box, activewear skit, there's one woman in the skit who's just a little bit fatter than the others and she looks immediately noticeable because activewear is about displaying mm. the body. It's a tyranny. But but I think this is the thing, Mel, even if they do start to make sizes um, for more accommodating to a broader you know, group of women, I think that that still shows the problem, which That's is that right. there is literally no corner of the resistance that capitalism cannot colonise. Neoliberalism is pretty much getting its tendrils into everything. So spaces that should be accessible to people without being paid for are being colonised and being commodified. So, you know, you're getting Bay doing, you know, with her Ivy Park line, which is becoming huge and maybe might accommodate different shapes and different, you know, ethnicities. Oh, yeah. But again, it's just a way of making money out of them. So, mm. so I guess the really underpinning level of this is that, you know, this isn't about exercise and exercise should be free. It's something that is, you know, uh, again, she's sort of saying we're paying for expensive uh, exercise routines and expensive clothes um, to kind of recover from our jobs that are, you know, literally killing ourselves, which are a part of being in capitalism, um, rather than kind of saying to everyone, look, you know, you can, as I used to, I guess, do a form of active transport where you're saving money, you know, walking down the street or, you know, buying an inexpensive bike and riding and saving money on 
on the bus and you don't have to wear anything special for that. Mm-hmm. Just hop on your bike. Um, and I think that that stuff is being lost when you're actually commodifying it in that way, regardless of the resistance. Mm. Well, there's a certain kind of irony, isn't there, in the fact that active wear replaces activism. The idea of um, agitating against these forces is a different kind of action that this clothing does not really equip you to do. Um, it just also bums me out because it's so ugly, so much of yeah. it. I know that we've just been talking about the whole aesthetic. Sorry, Mel. Um, I look pretty damn good in my active wear, I have to say. <laughs> Looking pretty good in your active wear. Um, it just, I love wearing leggings. And basically, I, uh, my joke is that I basically dress like a toddler. Toddlers are my style icons now. <laughs> but you can't get non active wear leggings anymore. You can only buy this bullshit active wear. Yeah. I, I really think, Mel, that uh, like, well, both of you have been making this point about the class aspirations because the thing about presenting the body that is suitable in active wear is about a conspicuous display of sexual capital, physical capital, body capital that is only available with time and and with resources and money for the gym. I would like to kind of suggest that there is a bit of a market for men in this this kind of active wear because increasingly I think the you know the gym toned male body is on display in active wear in these in the kind of like fitted track pant for example um, a lot more particularly you know in some cities like Sydney but you know you see <laughs> you see it a lot in Melbourne and you certainly see it in the kind of um, urban areas where there are kind of gyms or where there are like health food stores. And I think, yeah, there are some ways in which active wear is, has developed as a um, male market as well. Mm. Well, if you would like to check out Lauren Carroll Harris's essay, A Basically Marxist Analysis of the Rise of Activewear, you can pick up the latest edition, number 38 of The Lifted Brow. On to recommends. Mel, what would you like to recommend for us? What would I like to recommend? Um, Axiomatic by Maria Tamarkin. Uh-huh. I think you probably knew I was going to say that. That is one of the most extraordinary uh, books. Uh, it covers all sorts of things. I thought of it as a book about trauma. Um, Tamarkin thinks of it as a book about time. It unpacks all these different axioms and really, you know, does these extraordinary sort of you know, this extraordinary work with nonfiction. Um, she's using the true techniques of a novelist uh, and smooshing it into a nonfiction context in a way that I have never seen before. You have characters that have no business, I suppose, being within each other's narrative, being wound in in this amazing and extraordinary way. It is truly uh, the work of, of a unique mind in Australia's writing landscape. Uh, I just think anything Maria Tamarkin does is worth reading. This is particularly worth reading. Amazing. Do you know, we've been kind of trying to get Axiomatic on the the podcast for the longest time, but it's never kind of come together. I think part of the reason was we recently did the Browse Anthology on women in sport. So we we felt we needed to take a little break before we got there. but Before we sucked up to the brow for more (laughs) review copies. I would like to recommend a film called The Breaker Upperers, which is a New Zealand comedy about two women whose job it is to break up couples who are too cowardly to do the dirty deed themselves. And it's directed by Madeline Sammy and Jackie Van Beek, and it's executive produced by Taika Waititi, who's basically like the avatar of New Zealand comedy. And so many of the faces that appear as cameos in the film are well known both in New Zealand and Australia. And so I, I won't spoil it for anyone who sees it because part of the pleasure is in uh, recognising this whole drama. But essentially, um, Madeline Sammy and Jackie Van Beek, who um, wrote it and directed it, also star in it. Um, And it's about female friendship too, uh, about the idea that when is a romantic relationship or um, any kind of entanglement um, with the opposite sex, if you are straight or with the same sex, if you're gay, um, when is that more important than friendship and and what kind of relationships can we say are love and uh, which ones are meant to last? So the basic plot is that um, Jackie Van Beek plays Jen, who is chasing after her ex and her best friend Mel. This was a bit of a thing for me. Oh, no, the main character's got my name. Um, she hooks up with a, a really young dude who's a complete doofus. He's played by James Rolleston, who you might remember from the film Boy. Um 
And he's really adorable as well, and he's such a teenager. So it's a very everyday, ordinary film in many ways, um, but it's just also very funny in that low-key, shaggy way. And something about the New Zealand accent is just so much funnier than Australia. I don't understand what it is, or if it's that New Zealanders are cute when they're daggy, whereas Australians are embarrassing to me when they're daggy. Um, but The Breaker Uppers is just plenty of fun. It's in cinemas this Thursday, July 26th. Sounds like a really good, quite literal antidote to the setup, which we talked about on the last episode. It doesn't have that um, artificial feel, that feel of having been put together by an algorithm. <laughs> it has the feeling of two mates have talked about this story for a long time and now they've made it into a movie. Well, I'm just going to take it down to a, a profoundly trashy level um, and recommend, I think, like maybe for the third episode in a row, something I watched on Netflix. Um, There's nothing wrong with that very good network, Netflix, well, which look, we all love. No, okay, a, go on, a lot of people listening to this podcast have access to Netflix and probably would appreciate that if you're um, someone who enjoys horror movies... Which I do. There is a great one on Netflix at the moment, I think, called The Ritual. Oh, I like it already. The, the setup of this film is that a group of old friends, four men who went to college together, I guess, in the UK, get together for a um, hiking trip through the Scandinavian wilderness. What um, do they find Don't there? they know they should stay away from Scandinavia? <laughs> There's a whole lot of true crime going on over there, like seriously. But is it true crime or is it a kind of, um, it, like is it serial killers or is it something supernatural? Well, yes, it's more something kind of out of Norse legend <gasps> that they encounter, like an ancient kind of evil. Is it a troll? <laughs> Don't go over the bridge. <laughs> well, I'm not going to reveal anything because the less you know going into this film, the better. But I, I kind of... For anyone who's into this genre, um, this to me felt like the kind of male counterpart to The Descent. If you've ever seen this film about a group of American women who go spelunking into a cave. Oh, yes, I vaguely remember this. So the reason why the ritual is kind of similar to that is it starts with the kind of dramatic interpersonal psychological tension in the group because something very traumatic has happened to bring about this this walking trip. And then it brings in the natural environment, which itself in isolation is a kind of threat to the lives of these men who are like city slickers, yes. basically. And then <laughs> you get the kind of supernatural element. So it's like very cleverly in the same way as The Descent brings in these three layers of tension. And what I think is always great, it's like I'm always like, what is this kind of simmering, deeper psychic um, tension that's being played out in horror films? And, and in this one I think it's to do with male friendship and the kind of deep blockages that men have working through issues with each other and their relationships. It's not great. I don't <laughs> think it's deep. It's not going to change your life, but it will scare the shit out of you. And, you know, it's, it's a good way to spend an evening. Amazing. Thank you, dear. Oh, thanks, Mel. And thanks, Mel. All this Mel, Mel, Mel. Oh, so much Mel. <laughs> we must have you back so that we can have even more Mel. I'm loving that idea. <laughs> <laughs> this has been The Rereaders. The Rereaders is recorded on unceded sovereign Wurundjeri country and supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. We're produced by Arij Noor and Tan Hung Pham. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Rereaders and you can support us by subscribing to us on iTunes. Details are on our website, thereadders.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us again soon.